As I settle into another hot and humid summer here in the Midwest, today's episode of the Citizen Science Podcast featuring the Community Snow Observations Project makes me almost yearn to be on a backcountry hike through a cold, snowy winter day. Almost. But it's not just an escape from the high heat and dew points that makes the project appealing. You'll hear one of the project leaders, David Hill, and one of its volunteers, Katie O'Connell, talk about the importance of collecting snow depth data around the world, how that informs both local knowledge of things like avalanches and water availability, to how data contributed by everyday hikers can better inform global models of snow availability and its relationship to the water cycle. My co-host and proud Floridian, Caroline Nickerson, will take it from here. So I am Caroline Nickerson. I am the host of this podcast today, and I'm on the line with David Hill, the co-leader of Community Snow Observations, a citizen science project, and Katie O'Connell, a citizen scientist who volunteers with this project. David, Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. So I thought we'd just start with some introductions. You can just say who you are, say a little about your background, and what led you to Community Snow Observations. Sure. Yes, I'm a professor at Oregon State University uh, in the Water Resources Graduate Program. Prior to that, I was a professor at Pennsylvania State University for a while as well. Um, I have about 20 years or so of experience studying different aspects of the water cycle, mostly in Alaska and in the Pacific Northwest over the past 10 years or so. Uh, What else? I'm also a, a very avid backcountry skier, so I get out a lot and I have a lot of sort of up close and personal experience with snow, both for my work, but also for recreation. And yes, you mentioned I'm I'm one of the co-leaders of the CSO project. And my other co-leaders come from the University of Washington and the Alaska Division of Geological and Geophysical Surveys. Great. And then um, Katie, do you want to say a little bit about your background? Sure. Right now, I'm a graduate student at the Teton Science School in Kelly, Wyoming. And uh, this winter, we were in a class called uh, Winter Ecology, and that's where my class and I were introduced to CSO and were given snow probes to go probing all over Wyoming. And it was really awesome because uh, we've been very adventurous around campus and around the rest of Wyoming. The graduate program is an, an educational program, so it's for natural science and outdoor education. And so whenever we have student groups come, We've also been doing some snow science with them as well, which has been really, really cool to do. Cool. Okay. Well, Katie, you answered my next question. Um, What brought you to citizen science? It seems to have been that class. Is that right? Or had you done citizen science before you started with CSO? It was definitely that class. Before CSO, I've done some stewardship projects and community service where an organization gets it started for a day or two, Um, but I've never really done citizen science continuously on my own. So that introduction through winter ecology and CSO has really excited me and gotten me into citizen science. Very cool. David, what brought you to citizen science? Was creating Uh, a citizen science project your first introduction to it? Well, yeah, that's a great question. This project is, I would say, really kind of my first substantial experience with citizen science. Prior to that, as a professor, I've kind of always followed sort of the more traditional approach to science, I guess. You know, we come up with an idea, you sort of think of a hypothesis, maybe design some experiments and get some data and arrive at some conclusions. Those of us on the CSO team, I think we got interested in the idea of citizen science because we wanted to explore sort of the degree to which crowdsourced data could do things that those traditional methods couldn't do. 
And part of it is kind of an issue of scale. You know, uh, on the CSO team, we have a handful of people. And like, we can go out and make some measurements and, and collect some data. But if you think about citizen science and scaling things up, there's this idea that, you know, hey, we could have like hundreds of people participating and they're going to go all sorts of places that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to. So I think that whole kind of angle of citizen science, just the sheer sort of power and numbers and all that is, is really one of the things that attracted us to it. Awesome. So you said that you got interested with your team in starting a citizen science project because you wanted to scale things up. Maybe you could give some insight about how CSO works and what you have these volunteers doing. CSO really kind of got it got started up in Alaska and our, our colleagues up there through their work with the state, they do a lot of work assessing snow and avalanche hazards near major transportation corridors. So they spend time flying around in airplanes and making measurements with lasers of the snow depth. But they needed sort of a different way to kind of verify that those approaches were working well. And so that's kind of how the project got started, where they started thinking about, hey, you know, these places we're trying to measure are places where we see a lot of backcountry recreational use, like snowmobilers, backcountry skiers. And so that's kind of what led to the idea of maybe we could take advantage of the fact that there are people out there doing things already in the snow environment and, and get them to help us take data. When we started thinking about what we wanted people to do, I think a really important consideration was that we wanted to make the project as simple as possible. And what I mean by that is we had this idea that if we sort of asked citizen scientists to do really complicated things, go out and make really complicated measurements with specialized equipment, that maybe people wouldn't do it or they wouldn't stick with it because it took too much time. And so our whole thing was, let's make it incredibly simple. And all that we're asking people to do is simply measure the depth of the snow. So that's it. People go out and with a variety of measuring tools, they measure the snow depth. They record that information with an app on their smartphone. And that data comes right to us. And it tells us where they were, when they were, and how deep the snowpack was. Great. Maybe Katie can give some insight on this part. What tools do you use to measure the snow depth? I use an avalanche probe or a snow probe, basically. It's a long, thin rod. It kind of looks like a rod to put up your tent. And it folds up into a nice, neat package. And I'll bring that out hiking or cross-country skiing, backcountry skiing, and just have to unfold it and stick it in the snow. That's all you need along with your phone. So you measure with this um, avalanche snow probe and then you report the observation on an app. So David, did the app always exist with the project or has the project changed over time since you guys all got started? When we first thought of this project, we had in mind, what can we do to make it as successful as possible? And one of the things that we thought about was these days people have so many apps on their phone. It seems like you need a new app for everything. And one of the things that we thought about was like, you know, hey, rather than starting from scratch, rather than inventing our own app, is there an app out there already that people are using that we could work with the app developers to have it customized for our purposes? And so that's actually the route that we took. So we partnered with a company called Mountain Hub, and Mountain Hub had this existing app which was geared towards essentially outdoor recreation. So people use this app to do all kinds of things. They use it to share information about ski trips and bicycle trips and other things that they do outside. And they have a place where within this app, 
you can go ahead and you can record the snow depth. And so we feel like that's been a, a good move by using an app that was already out there, already being used by the outdoor community. We just made some small changes to it. And hopefully now it's as accessible as possible to people. Yeah, that's that's great. So Katie, like you said you got started because you were exposed to CSO through one of your courses. What's kept you participating after that initial exposure? It's just been really exciting to be able to be part of something bigger, to go out and not just go for a hike, but then also add some data to a larger picture. Um, and then as school groups have come to our campus for programming, snow science is something that we like to teach during the, the winter. And having that probe and that citizen science connection was a really good opportunity to connect with students of elementary age and get them excited about citizen science as well as snow and <laughs> everything about snow. So how would you define snow science for someone who's never heard about it before? I would say just everything from the makeup of a snowflake to avalanche safety to snowpack depth and everything that has to do with weather and, and snow. Okay, so it's kind of understanding the snow from when it falls to the physical components of it to how it manifests in the environment, all of exactly. those things? Okay. Yes. So David, what would you say have CSO's big contributions been so far to snow science? What have you all learned? Well, I, I think that we really kind of have three main goals. And the, the first goal is just to get started, is to really develop and sustain a, a global network of citizen scientists who are willing to participate in the program and to regularly submit data. So that's really our first goal is to kind of grow this project. And, and you know, we're about a year and a half into this project, and I feel like we've done really well there in terms of attracting and retaining users. Now, our, our second goal is to actually take the data that people send to us and to use these data to essentially build better snowpack models. And what we're really interested in doing is over space and time, being able to predict the distribution of snow. When does it arrive? How does the snowpack evolve over time? And then ultimately in the spring, how does the snowpack melt away and become freshwater running off in the stream? So that's our, our second main goal is to, to use those data directly to build better snowpack models. And then the third thing is to essentially use these improved snowpack models to actually help NASA improve their remote sensing measurements of snow. And NASA has a lot of different tools that they use. They use airborne LIDAR, which is, again, measuring snow depths using lasers. NASA has a variety of satellites that can measure certain properties of snow such as snow-covered area. Is the land covered by snow or is it not? And having the ability to create better models actually helps them refine their techniques. So those are kind of our three key goals. And, and so far in the project, what we've seen is with the initial sort of model development that we've been doing is that the data that we get from citizen scientists is incredible. It does an amazing job of allowing us to build better snow models. And so that was exactly the result that we were hoping for and we think really exciting. Great. So for snowpack, that just means snow on the ground. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So you mentioned the data has been incredible. Is there a way for you to verify the data? Or you, when you take the data to build a model, is the model kind of its own proof that the data is working well? Computer models and on-the-ground data, those two things need to exist in tandem. 
There's no question. You know, building a computer model, you can make a model do anything you want and make pretty pictures, but without on-the-ground data verifying that the model is working well, that, that's not a good idea. So those two things go hand in hand, for sure. Got it. Got it. So you mentioned that people help you understand the snow over different periods of time from when it falls, when it's on the ground to when it's melting. Katie, have you been taking different observations as the season of snow progresses? Yes, definitely. There's some that I've seen the change over the entire winter and others that are just a one-time data point. Around the Kelly campus here, there's common hikes that I continuously go on um, and take those depths repeatedly. But then there's also snow depths that I take on a hike that I've probably only been there once this winter. Do you get help from the CSO team when you're deciding what measurements to make? Or do you kind of do that at your own discretion based on like what hikes you're going on? I can just choose wherever I want. Yep. Great. I guess this is more of a question for David now. Are a lot of your volunteers like Katie, where they're really dedicated and they sometimes go on the same repeated hike to take different measurements over time? Oh, great question. And I would say we have a little bit of everything. <laughs> and, and actually, that's just the way that we want it. Like, it's important to sort of point out that if people ask us for advice, like, you know, where and when should we make measurements, you know, we're happy to sort of offer some suggestions. But we are very much treating this as a grassroots effort. And our sort of mantra is data anywhere, anytime is beneficial to the project. So we have some people, I think, who go out and in a very sort of random way, might sample here, might sample there, maybe do it somewhat infrequently. And then we have, I guess we, we kind of call sort of like super users, <laughs> well, people like Katie, and we have, we have some other folks in Oregon and this and that who are really dedicated to the project and, and go out with pretty good frequency and go back and revisit some of the same locations. And so there's no like one is better than the other. We're very happy to have both. And I, I think it's nice because the project really affords people whatever level of participation that they want to put forth. Um, and you mentioned that you, they use simple tools. Do you give them instructions about how to use the tools for data quality reasons? Or do people usually just learn that on their own? Katie mentioned that the primary tool that people use is what's called an avalanche probe. These are typically two and a half to three meters in length, so you can sample up to about 10 feet of snow with those. And they're very nice because they're graduated. They have like centimeter markings on it. You can also, if you're in a location where the snowpack is not that great, you could do this with a meter stick or a yardstick, and that's very easy to do. You can do something like take a tape measure and tape it to a long stick and, and use that to sample the snowpack depth. So any of those are fine. And on our website at communitysnowobs.org, we have a variety of tutorials that are actually on the website. And these tutorials sort of walk you through step-by-step step how to make a measurement from selecting a good site to how do you actually run the app. So the whole thing is right there to follow. That's great. And um, you mentioned that you want people from all around the world doing this. How big is your community right now? And um, what continents and countries do you have engaged? Well, so if you go to the communitysnowobs.org website, there is a map where essentially in real time, you can view all of the data points that have come in. And we had data points from all over the world, you know, Asia, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, North America, of course. 
So we have data from all over the place, and we're glad to have it all. Uh, in terms of the number of users, that's a good question. I'm not sure I've counted that up, but I do know that we are well over four or 5,000 measurements that have come in over the year and a half or so this project has been going. Got it. Okay. And now one question about the data and the research. So is your data publicly available? Like, for example, if I was like a graduate student studying snow science, would I be able to request it for research? Or is it more just for the missions that you mentioned earlier? No, it's 100% open. That's something that we take very seriously and we think is very important. This is a project by the people for the people in that way. So all of the data that comes into our project is hosted on our website and anybody can go there at any time and they can download all the data. They can download, if they want to zoom in just on their mountain range, you can download just a subset of the data. So it's all there to be used by anybody who's interested. Wow. And uh, I was thinking it's good that it's a global effort because Katie, when um, winter ends where you are, maybe you can fly somewhere else and start sampling some snow again. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. David, you mentioned that you have colleagues um, in Alaska at your own university. For the CSO team, how do you all work together using this data? Sure. Well, our, our team is broken up with sort of different responsibilities in terms of who sort of handles the database in, uh, you know, IT infrastructure and who manages the computer modeling. So we have very sort of complementary skills, if you will. And we have regular conference calls. We have annual meetings where we get together and sort of decide what area are we going to study next. So, for example, we've been studying Alaska mostly, but now our group has made the decision that sort of our next area of intense work is going to be the western Wyoming area. And that's partly a decision that's been driven by the, the positive response that we've had from citizen scientists in that area. So we're kind of letting the participation in some ways drive the project. I see. So those areas of focus, you still use um, and value, I guess, the observations that come from like other countries, for example, but those areas of focus, I guess you mentioned that citizen scientists are driving it. It's kind of just where you get like the bulk of your observations. The modeling work that we're doing to sort of complement the measurements is one that has to sort of grow in kind of a phased way. So we hope that over the next couple of years of the project that we will continue to expand our modeling to many new domains. But we're sort of taking it one at a time, and, and we're trying to move our efforts to where people have been the most responsive. Got it. Um, and with the modeling, so you mentioned that's just predicting like how the snow will fall, like how it will look in future years. Is that right? And you mentioned that you work with NASA as well. That's correct. So NASA is actually the, the, the main funding agency for this project. And then the, the goal of the modeling work is to essentially predict the accumulation, the transformation, and then the eventual melt of the snowpack over a complete season. So that's what we're able to do with that modeling. So Katie, as a citizen scientist, what advice would you give to someone who would like to get involved with citizen science and with CSO and maybe are a bit confused or unsure of where to start? I'd probably say to just get involved in citizen science where you are already interested in, where you have a passion. For me, it was easy to get involved with CSO because I was already, well, I was living in a place with a lot of snow in Wyoming, and then I was already outside a lot. And so it was very easy just for me to add in a little bit of data collection along the way. Yeah, so I guess my advice is to fit it in where, where your interests lie. 
That definitely makes sense. If you love to cross-country ski, why wouldn't, like you said earlier, Katie, you said that you like being part of something bigger. I mean, this is a great way to take like a leisure activity people love and make it a force of scientific inquiry. So that's awesome. For both of you, is there anything else you wanted to talk about that we haven't mentioned yet or um, any topics that you think would be really good to cover? I'll throw a couple things out there. I mean, I think I definitely just want to kind of encourage your listeners to, whether it's through this project or another, to take whatever steps they can to educate themselves about their water and where it comes from. You know, depending upon where you are in the country, uh, groundwater may be your primary source of drinking water. In other areas, it's surface water. You know, I love this project because snow is certainly here in Oregon. It's a huge part of our water supply. And I, I want people to sort of not take that for granted. You know, when you turn on the tap, and stuff, water comes out, there's quite a story behind it. So um, I just encourage people to always be thinking about water and, and, and take what steps they can to learn about it. Definitely. And then um, Katie, what about you? Is there anything else you wanted to mention? I'd agree with Dave and um, the importance of education about, about your water. I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I've done a lot of research around the Schuylkill River and uh, water in urban areas. And so it's really awesome to make that connection to all around the world and to see how snow interacts with your water as well. Have you seen a CSO community sprout up where people kind of compare observations together? Is there that functionality of CSO or is it more just people contributing data where they are? Well, in April, CSO had a spring palooza. Oh uh, it was a competition to uh, get the most measurements in April, I guess. So over that month, I definitely saw a lot of really cool pictures pop up and um, some really cool competition between citizen scientists <laughs> to get the most measurements, which was, uh, it was, that was a lot of fun. Did you win? Uh, I came in second. Oh my I God. Think, yeah. So I, I think we have something coming your way, Katie. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so to add on to that, you know, I, I will say that we, the CSO program does have, you know, a fairly active social media presence, both Twitter and Instagram. And like Instagram is a great example. You know, it's a great place to sort of feature photos from participants and those kinds of things. And so I, I do feel like we're trying to foster a little bit of a sense of community there. It is a very decentralized program. That's kind of the whole idea behind citizen science is that it's organic and we don't try to structure it too much, but we do like sort of having things like that available. Other things are, you know, there are various sort of workshops and events that occur all around the country at different times of year. I'm thinking of things like events at ski areas or snow and avalanche workshops where we are often giving presentations. And that's a really good opportunity for people in the community to kind of come up and talk to us and, and tell us what they think about how the program is going and things like that. David, would you say that's the main way you all recruit your participants? Because um, I know Katie found you through a class, but how do people usually find you? Great. That is such a good question. <laughs> we, we, you know, we are pursuing lots of different strategies. I would say the snow and the avalanche workshops that are held around the country are one of the best ways to do that. Uh, we have about a dozen or so regional avalanche centers that are largely affiliated with the Forest Service. And most of them have these annual meetings where there may be four or 500 attendees. And most of these attendees are people who are backcountry users. And so giving presentations at those workshops is an, is an excellent opportunity. So we try lots of different things, whether it's through social media, whether it's through actual face-to-face -face meetings. We try and conduct occasional trainings uh, where we get 20 or 30 people together and sort of show them how the project works. 
So it's lots of different strategies. I know you've only um, done the project for a year and a half, but you mentioned that you have a long career and lots of expertise in this field. So I was wondering, what changes have you seen in snow science with current trends in climate? Oh, well, there's a couple of things there. I mean, over yeah, one of the main things that has changed in pretty much any kind of earth science is just the sheer amount of data that is out there. And I'm talking about both on the ground data that's collected, but then also computer model data. So there's just so much information out there and trying to sort of sort through what's available and what is most appropriate for your particular project or interest is really quite something. And then with regards to sort of climate change issues, that's an interesting one because there definitely have been numerous studies that over the past 30, 40 years have documented fairly substantial downward trends in snowpack in the Western United States. In some ways, the snowpack is a little bit buffered. And what I mean by that is we may have strongly increasing temperatures, but in some areas, the precipitation is increasing as well. So maybe the snowpack isn't going down quite as rapidly as one might otherwise expect. I see. I'm excited to see um, what CSO contributes to that field of inquiry in the future. I guess, David, one more question for you is, what do you see the future of CSO being? Well, that's a great question. And what we really would like is for this to find its legs, so to speak, and to turn into kind of a self-sustaining citizen science effort. What we don't want is to have this project run its whatever four-year course and then to essentially go away. We, we want to develop this community. We want people to recognize the importance of it, and we want it to sustain itself. I think there are several good models or templates of that if you look at other citizen science type efforts. For example, there's one called COCORAS, which is all about essentially making measurements of meteorologic conditions, rainfall, temperature. And that's a project that's been around for well over a decade now and has grown has sustained and is kind of at equilibrium now. I'd really like to see CSO turn into something like that. Would you say that you're um, one of the only citizen science projects that focuses on the depth of snow? Well, so Kokoraz has some snow observations as well. Um, they tend to be lower elevation, more like backyard observer type projects. In terms of an effort to go out into the backcountry to the highest elevations where most of the snow is, I believe that our project really is the only one. There are several other really fascinating citizen science projects that have to do with snow. There's one called Stories in the Snow, which is all about logging photographs of snow crystal shapes. And there's another one called the Living Snow Project. And that's one that has to do with snow algae or what is sometimes called watermelon snow. And so there's all kinds of really cool projects out there that are associated with either snow or with other aspects of the water cycle. Anybody who's interested has all kinds of interesting things to choose from. Great. So Katie, have you done any other citizen science projects other than CSO? Yeah, um, through Teton Science School, when we have uh, elementary schools and other ages come to our program for a week or two. We bring them to places around our campus. And one of the citizens projects that we have is at a warm springs nearby. And we collect data on the, the fish that are living in the warm springs. Um, because in years past, people have uh, 
let their personal fish go in the warm springs, like goldfish. And uh, so we're collecting data on what we see there and um, how the goldfish might be affecting the uh, native species. That's so interesting. And that's something um, for both of you. We always ask people near the close of a show about different topics and projects that you're excited about and you'd want people to know about or any other guests that you know of that you could recommend to us. Um, Because the citizen science community is so great and we love hearing uh, about your ideas too. Sure. So, well, I have a couple of things. Uh, There are the two projects that I mentioned earlier, Stories in the Snow and the Living Snow Project. The Stream Tracker project at Colorado State University is is another really interesting one, and it has to do with sort of intermittent streams, streams that are sometimes there and sometimes not, trying to document that. An interesting person for you to consider having as a guest would be Elizabeth Burakowski. She's a research professor at the University of New Hampshire, and she has a really broad portfolio of interesting snow-related projects, so she would be a fantastic person to speak to. And then I I think one other project I could mention, and it's not really a formal project per se, but I I think it's worth mentioning in the context of citizen contributions in snow. I mentioned the regional avalanche centers earlier, and it's worth pointing out that citizen observers play a a huge role in in backcountry safety in, in tandem with those avalanche centers. A lot of times avalanche centers do a great job. They they essentially document avalanches that have occurred with photographs, with descriptions, with locations on a map. And in large part, they rely on professional observers, but they also rely on citizen contributions. That's a huge service by both the paid observers and the citizen observers. And uh, it's one that's really important in terms of backcountry safety. Great. Katie, do you have any ideas of guests we could have on or topics we could focus Um, on? I don't know any uh, specific guests, but there's an app that I'm trying to get myself into. It's called iNaturalist. Through that app, you can collect data on the natural history of a place. So if you see birds coming in at a certain time of year, you you can note what bird you saw and where, or uh, when animals come in and out of a habitat, depending on the weather and the time of season. Cool. I was wondering for both of you, why do you like snow? What about snow makes you want to study it and what makes you dig it? I like snow because you can do so many different things in the snow. Um, You can ski, you can hike, cross-country ski, backcountry ski. Um, You can make a snowman, you can have a snowball fight. Um, I feel like the options are endless um, and with a long Wyoming winter, uh, snow is a good thing to keep you occupied. There's so much adventure that's connected with snow. Yeah, and it's also very peaceful too at the same time. Snow has kind of this insulating quality. And so a lot of the usual sounds maybe of summer aren't there yet. The animals are quiet. The streams are quiet. You know, you get a bluebird day and and calm, clear skies, and it's just a magical place to be. This is making me like snow now. Wow, this is <laughs> this is beautiful. And I hope that people hear this and it makes them inspired to get out into the snow and do your project as well. David, Katie, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. We really appreciate it. And until next time, I hope that you have a great time in the snow. Thanks again. Yes, thank great. Thanks so for having us. To learn more about community snow observations, download the app, and contribute measurements of snow depth in your area, visit communitysnowobs.org. That's communitysnowobs.org.
Citizen Science is produced by Justin Schell and Caroline Nickerson in association with SciStarter. Music for this episode was I'll Be Good from Setec, used under a Creative Commons license via the Free Music Archive. To learn more about our show, get a transcript of this episode, and listen to previous episodes, please visit SciStarter.org podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback on what we've done so far and ideas for what we could do in the future. Send us a note at info at SciStarter.org. If you like the show, please rate or review us on your podcast platform of choice, or simply send it to a friend. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you then.